everyone here. Hope everybody's doing good, having a good Labor Day weekend. Uh, do you know why they, they call it Labor Day? It's, uh, and, and it doesn't have anything to do with having babies as much as it is with resting and recreating and hopefully in the process uh, finding yourself rejuvenated. Uh, it is good to rest. It's part of God's sacred rhythm. It's bundled into the week. Seven days were given and one of them we need to check out just a little bit from everything that we do in life. And it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It just means that we recreate and we, we don't allow everything to just take over our lives and, and, um, and we become a slave to everything. So when you come into a place like this and you hear things like that, it's really just uh, one of many things that God is doing in our lives to show us a different way. And um, the problem is we're not always willing to go along. Anybody go to the fair, Canfield Fair this week? Okay. Um, what, what was your favorite aspect of the fair? Horses, food. You know what I thought was so interesting? We just got through talking about sheep for two weeks, right? So I thought, you know what? I'm gonna go check out the sheep. I'm gonna see what kind of a person God thinks I am. And it was interesting because they were really pretty cool looking. They're, they're very soft to touch and, and um, you know, they, they're just kind of a, a beautiful little farm animal. What I discovered though is when you take 12, 12 year olds and you put them in an arena with their sheep, Sheep don't always want to play. They don't always want to go along. And it's interesting to see a sheep that's about this high being wrestled by a 12-year-old that's about that high to show them to a judge who is about that high and in the process, bringing all these things into alignment in a way that everything flows the way it should. And this is what I saw going on. They would bring the sheep in with their halter and then they would have to wrap their arm around their neck and then the other, other arm is somehow contorted around their face. And then that's how they kept them still. I mean, they really had to just manhandle these sheep to keep them in place. And it was so interesting to see the different tactics that kids use. Like the one real cowboy kid, he had this stance like a cowboy and he's doing that and he's wrestling it. And another one was like the horse whisperer, just sort of gently you know, talking to her sheep and the sheep just sort of gently responding and everything in between. And the theme that I thought that was so front and center was sheep don't always want to go along with the program. So I thought, well, let's try goats. So went and saw the goats and little kids are bringing goats in and the goats are, are um, you know, anywhere from three, three months old to three years old. And I saw a theme here. The younger the goat was, the less mature the goat was, the less the goat wanted to go in. And this is how it played out. There were some five and seven year olds in this one mix and the goats were little. And when they came into the arena, it wasn't like the goat was following in tow from uh, the lead of the, of, the, of the five or six year old. It was like this, the goat was like this, and the, and, the, and the kid was dragging the goat in, and the goat was saying, no, no. I think that's what it was saying anyway. And, and, and pretty soon, we talked about this earlier, uh, one of the kids just burst into tears, because he's like, my goat isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, and all these 
people out here watching. I mean, it's so humiliating. And then the, the girl behind her was dressed in a very identical ensemble of clothing, which indicated to me that they're related. And they looked a lot alike. And as that girl was dragging her goat in, it was maybe a little bit older and a little less reluctant. But nonetheless, it was skidding across the floor too. And then pretty soon, she's in tears. And it's just a great big, I don't know. It was just interesting. All I could say is it wasn't going the way that it was supposed to go, clearly. And as I was just looking at that, I thought, wow, we are kind of like that. You see, when Jesus came upon the scene and he wanted to show the love of God in every way possible, but he also wanted us to, 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 to begin to understand that God has a way that's different than the way that we want to do things. And fast forwarding back to the sheep and the goats that we saw there, the older that they were and the more mature that they were, it seemed like the more compliant they were. It just took them a long time to figure out, this is what I need to do. But eventually they got it. And what Jesus saw when he saw all the people that he was called to minister to were basically people like us. People who, no question, wanted God in our lives, but also had a lot of other things going on that said, I kind of like being in control of my life. I kind of like doing things my way. I, I, I really sort of want to follow your good ways, God, but from my point of view, this way seems like the right way. And what Jesus had a hard time with was showing a different way that sometimes didn't make any sense at all. And so for people that were hungry, he said, I'm the bread. For people that were were dealing with sheep all the time and understood their characteristics, he said, I'm the shepherd. For people that had a, a need for security and protection, he said, I'm the gate. I'm the guy who keeps the good in and keeps the evil out. And for people like us who periodically run into moments where everything is just crashing down and in the most extreme form, it means that someone that we deeply love has died. And they're no longer going to be with us. And all of a sudden, we have this story that we've shared with this person for so long. And now there's just a big gap. And we think about all the times that we interacted with them and all the times that they were there and all the things that we did uh, fun and, and, and painful and even heated moments of, 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 of argument. And yet in all of those things, we know that that has ended. And the finality of it is a, is a shock to our system. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been there a few times. The word that we have for that is grief. It is the whole range of emotions that we have when something or someone that we have cared deeply about, something has died. And it's pretty powerful. And there are a lot of people who come to church looking for an answer to the hope that, that, that they long to find. That is there, is there an answer to this? Is there an answer to the question of death? 
And they come here hoping that they can find something that will help them through that whole experience. Then there are people on the other side, and maybe, maybe you're even one of them, where you've dealt with something painful, and you've been a believer for a long time, and you are disappointed that God hasn't answered the, your prayer like you needed it to be answered, or God has allowed a life to be shortened. And here we are. And you know what I think? Wherever you're at in your relationship to that moment, God understands more than I think you'll ever realize. And one of the reasons why Jesus said, I am so many times, because following that statement, I am, he's telling us in this particular area, I am your source. I am the one you need to come to to get through that or to get what you need for that. And Jesus isn't a 30,000 foot God that is just so removed from everything that we experience. He is a God who has become one of us in a mysterious way, in such a way that he begins at the level that we operate the day to day, the, the get up, get out of bed, to eat, to shower, go to the bathroom, to interact with family members, have all of those uh, wonderful ranges of, of, of experiences with family members, and then going to bed at night. He said, I'm, I, I'm that God. I'm the God who does those things so that you can understand just how much I want to be a part of your world, and I want you to be a part of mine. So when Jesus comes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he doesn't just blurt it out like, oh yeah, by the way, if you die, I'm your guy. I'm the resurrection and the life. No, John, when he tells the story about how Jesus makes us aware of that, embeds us right in a situation where people that he probably, his family outside of his family, you ever have family outside of your family that aren't really your biological people, but they're, you know, people that you would consider that the case anyway? Well, there were three people that lived in the Washingtonville version of the approximation that it has to Salem. Bethany was a little town just outside of Jerusalem that he would go and just sort of check out in. And he would spend time at a particular couple's or family's house, three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and had a wonderful time with them, but they were all three very different. Martha was the busy one. She's the one that couldn't sit still. She's the one that is constantly doing and looking at other people when they're not doing and asking a question, why are you not doing something? And then Mary, who's the contemplative one, the reflective type, is thinking about all the stuff as Jesus is saying and taking it in and just digesting it. And Lazarus, we really don't know much about him other than Jesus found camaraderie in the friendship that he had with Lazarus because being human, being you know one who has taken on our humanity in the way that he has, he had that need for camaraderie. So the story goes, and I'm, I'm just gonna um, summarize some of it for your sake. But in John chapter 11, it picks up and it says, well, it was all going good until this happened. And so let's, uh, let's look at what happened in John chapter 11. 
And it said, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And um, this is this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed, what? He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. The rabbi, they said, just a little while ago we were there and the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, My friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. And then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let's go and we'll die with him. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered pretty flatly. I know it'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. We all know that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and who is to come into the world. And after he, she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not entered, yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with him, with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But the more cynical one said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So I don't know if, if any of that 
that, that, that drama in that, in that story touches your life, but it definitely touches mine because we have all had those experiences where what we wanted and what we expected from God didn't happen. And it seems like God didn't even care, or at least that's how we felt. And yet when I look at that story and I take my willfulness in wanting to do it my way and I put it aside and I say, God, show me in that story what I need to see because it is too painful thinking about going on without this person. And maybe that's where you're at. Grief is a funny thing because it reaches every life. It is no respecter of persons. It is a, a range of emotions that is kind of like a will. When we, when we lose somebody, we feel shocked. We feel disbelief. We feel anger. We start to bargain saying, God, if, if, if I do this, will you bring this person back? We can fall into an anger so deep that we become bitter and we withdraw from God and everything about the painful world that we just had to, had to enter into. And then it can start all over again. And maybe you've had that. And if you have, I honestly believe Jesus included this so he could show us that despite what we're going through and even the prayers that we have, God has a, a larger plan for things that is a, it's a, it's a 30, it's 120,000 foot view where he sees so many things happening and on the timeline there will come a day when it is all resolved in such a way that we'll look back and we'll say, oh, I didn't get it fully at the time and some of it still doesn't make a lot of sense, but I see you were working the whole time. Now here's what I think because maybe you're thinking, why would you, Jesus, not just get on the quickest train or airplane back to the place where your friend Lazarus was and do that thing that you've been doing so well for so long. How come you didn't do that, Jesus? Jesus has got some other stuff on his plate right now and, 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 and you really gotta be aware of this. You see, in the opening part of the chapter, things are escalating to such an extent that the disciples are saying, you really don't wanna go back there because you know when you do, it's going to get worse, and it's probably going to become lethal. And Jesus knew that after this is through, the issue of death is next on the agenda, and it's going to be his. And John wrote this in such a way that it concludes with another discussion about death, and it is, at the, it is from the lips of the high priest who is looking at events that are getting ready to happen through Passover and he says, you know, one needs to die for the sins of many. And he was talking about a person. And it was a way of saying something that he really didn't even fully understand the full weight of what that meant. The problem is Jesus is fully aware that death is just on the horizon and it's gonna be his. But he's not fully, because he's reduced in his divine capacities to 
to see everything as it unfolds. He can only have things revealed to him to the Father. And he knows on the other side, the Father has promised he will, he will deliver him from the ravages and the finality of death. He knows it. But the human side of him says, I still got to go through it. And to add sort of complexity to the whole thing, I don't know about you, but if I knew that my death was coming within a, just a very short span of time, like a few weeks, I'd be thinking about that a lot. And if I knew a friend of mine had died in the middle of that, I think it would just shut me down. But here's what I think Jesus did. And I think, I, I think, it's, I, I think, I think the, the story merits it. When Jesus tarried for two days while his friend obviously was dead, what do you think he was doing? Here's what I think he was doing. He was doing what he needed to do. He needed to prepare for what was to come after he did what he needed to do to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he needed to get everything sorted out with the Father so he could begin that whole ordeal of experiencing arrest, trial, beatings, execution. He knew it was coming. And so I think he prayed. And here's what I think he prayed about. First of all, how long was Lazarus dead? Four days. Okay. Four days. Now, I, don't, I know enough about death because I live out in the country that it doesn't take long for bodies to start decomposing. Here's honestly what I think he was doing. I think he was praying that Lazarus' body would not decompose. So that when the time came, he could say, Lazarus, come out. And the reason I say that is because if you fast forward to the end of the, to that, to that moment in the story, which we haven't talked about because of time, Lazarus is in the tomb. His sister says, this wouldn't happen if you'd come sooner. Jesus says, take me to the tomb. He says, roll the tombstone away. And his sister Martha, who is a very busy person, very astute person, said, I don't think so. I mean, it's bad enough, Jesus, that you did not show up. And now we're going to be smelling his corpse. And you could see a little bit of that bite to what she said. You know what Jesus said? Roll the stone away so that the Father can be glorified. And then he thanked the Father for hearing his prayers. They rolled the stone away, no smell, and Lazarus came out. And it wasn't some big ordeal about, you know, God first, you know, change that around and then bring him out and all this stuff. He said, no, thank you, Father, for, for hearing my prayer. And the sense of, of, uh, of really elation, you know, just quickly just changed the atmosphere. And it became very clear that the power of mortality was in the hands of Jesus himself. 
And it became clear to people around him that he was the Messiah. His sister said, you are the Messiah. You're, you're Christ the Lord. And he wanted to show that that's good information promised in wonderful books in the Old Testament. But at the gut level, do you know it? I mean, I've read the Bible through and through. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that I've read that has perplexed me. A lot of stuff I've read, I believe. But there are a lot of things that I know I'm tested on, and my behavior doesn't always show it. And what Jesus was doing was basically saying, I want to show you something. And I want to show it on a real-world way. I'm going to die, and it's going to it's gonna be pretty ugly. But in the process of dying, I'm going to accomplish something that has never been accomplished. I'm going to eliminate the curse of death upon humanity, and I'm going to create a reconciliation through the cross. And on the other side of that, the Father's going to raise me out of the tomb, and I'm going to be the first one of many who will experience immortality, who will never have to worry about the grave again. And so Jesus allowed his friend to go through that because the people needed to see that that power was truly at work. And he said that so you'd believe. Don't you believe? And she said, his sister, or Lazarus' sister said, yes, I believe. But do you? Many of us come to church. We hear the word. We believe the word. But then a lot of us, well, I know one day I'm going to see my loved one. I know one of these days I'm going to die. And I know Jesus says, don't be afraid. And I know that that hope is something that pastor and other people talk about all the time. But if you've ever had to stare death in the face, and it was either yours or someone close to you, do you believe it in your gut? That what you see in front of you is not the end. I think a lot of us, to some degree, have to come to terms to that because psychologists have, have, have done interviews of people on the subject of fear, and they've asked the question, what are you afraid of the most? And repeatedly, people will finally get to, get to, the, to, the, to the answer behind the answer, and it is always death. And there's a book that came out probably 20 years ago by Ernest Becker, that's called The Denial of Death. And essentially it says that we go through life looking for ways to cheat death, to escape death, to not think about death, to avoid death, to do whatever we can to not have to face the reality that one day each of us in this room and everybody else on the planet will have to, have to, come, have, have to realize and accept that they're going to die. And until we're ready to make our peace with that, that fear is always going to be following us around everywhere. And some of us in the room have made, made our peace with that. We've had to face death in some form, and we've gone through that whole soul-searching, agonizing, God, you know, I'm scared at this level. Until God says, at that level, I want you to not be afraid. And some of us in the room can say, and, I, and, I, and I, I think I would count myself amongst them, 
but I, I haven't been there for, it's not that I've been there for a long time. But if death were to come, I would be okay. I honestly, at the gut level, would say I'm okay with it. I am okay with it. But I went from preaching it and believing it and trusting it as a promise to knowing in my gut that it's all right. It's like the first step is to believe the information and to keep it stuck, stored away in your head. The second part of it is things will have to happen in your world where you're saying, I'm okay with it. And then you find peace and it's almost like life-giving, like you're not, you're not, that fear isn't overshadowing all of your bandwidth so much that you can't even function. Or it's not taking away a part of your life every day because you want to avoid it if all possible. It's liberating, honestly. It's a way of saying, I'm, I'm good. I am good. And everything that Jesus does is to help us to die to ourselves because we're like that goat or like that sheep and we've got to sort of be coerced sometimes to do what we need to do. Only God doesn't try to force us any more than he can influence us and help us to see and to nudge us and to kind of bring us along because he's so loving. And that's the other side of it. When Jesus looked at death, the death of a loved one, what does it say he did? Shortest verse in the Bible, but perhaps the most powerful. It said Jesus wept. You can take that from many different angles, but I, I personally take it to mean that, you know, I've studied a lot of theology and all this stuff because it is my, my, my field. And I could go 120,000 feet and I could talk about the philosophy of God and the Trinity and all the different concepts and all of those very ivy, ivy tower things. But I, I want to assure you that the one portrait of God that I hope you carry out of this place with you is that one of him crying because it just shows how God at the closest to the ground level level cares for us and has embedded himself in the situation so deeply that he's even feeling the pain of it. And some would say he cried because other people were crying and that may be true. Other people would say that he's crying because he's truly feeling grief, even though he knows. And other people would say he's crying because it's just the thing to do within that setting. I would say it's probably all of the above. You know, whenever I was watching these two girls try to bring the goats in and the one girl having so much of so much trouble and then, and then bursting into tears and then her sister having a little bit of trouble, seeing her sister crying, also bursting into tears. I mean, have you honestly, have you ever been around somebody that when they cry, you got to be like, I just got to keep it together so nobody sees that tear coming down my face. And sometimes we don't even know why we're crying. And something right below the surface in the room is my friend Ari and his mom Morella and, and Shirley who are looking at the lifeless body of Ari's father in the hospital room. And they're wailing. They are 
it's, it's uncontrollable sobbing. And it isn't just momentarily. It is ongoing. And you know, in Jesus' day, that's the way it was as well. And after I walked out of that room and I was talking to my friend Cliff, I said, that's different than how we do it. Because how we do it is somebody dies, we put on a poker face, it's all good, we believe in the hope of the resurrection, and you know we're laughing and carrying on sometimes, we're trying to hold it together, but we don't want to show any emotion at all, because we don't want to show a loss of control. And so we just kind of keep it all bottled in, because that's what we do in our culture. Don't make a display of yourself publicly and humiliate yourself. Those people didn't care. And you know what psychologists have also said is that sometimes when we cry at a person's funeral because everybody else is crying, it's because there's still something inside of us from a grief that we are carrying that needs to come out. And it's sort of like an opportunity to release that as well as empathize with other people. And so sometimes we're crying because the grief is sort of blurring over into our own. And psychologists have actually documented that because they'll say, now how, much, how close were you to that person? And they'll say, not really very close, but you cried. I did, because they were crying. But it also reminded me of something inside of me that was like something inside of them. And so if I could just go down into Jesus' heart a little bit, I think embedded in those tears were a few stories. One of them was his friend. One of them was the face of his sisters. One of them was the fact that I too am going to be dying as well. And that is going to be grief, grievous. And Jesus at that point of his three years has seen so much pain on so many faces. And if you've ever been around or in a helping profession and you've seen pain on people's faces, it accumulates inside of you. It really does. And you have your own moments where you just gotta kind of release that as well. And I personally believe that whole range of everything is bottled up inside of him and it just came out. It came flooding out. There are some translators who say, yeah, North American white people would say, yeah, Jesus, Jesus wept. But other translators would say, nah, he was sobbing uncontrollably. But we've sort of doctored that one up. Why am I sharing all of that? Because Jesus' whole mission, the whole point of going through all of this is so that the Father could be glorified, and as a result of the resurrection of Lazarus, people would believe. And there's so much about that story of Lazarus' death, entombment, and resurrection that if you read it carefully, it actually parallels pretty interestingly with the story of Jesus' own death, entombment, and resurrection. And I think it's his way of saying, if you look at the pattern of what's going on here, that, in fact, is what God is getting ready to do. But none of us need to be overwhelmed by that because I am the resurrection and the life. 
not some not just some doctrine or some teaching that's clearly important but the reality is our connection to jesus is the means by which we find resurrection it's in a person it is our connection to him in him like like rich was saying in the song in him we find that resurrection in him these things begin to take on their own reality and their own effect and even when we face death it is because we're in him that we can say yeah i can finally discover peace and as jesus is showing this play out on the stage of his own life he's saying what is getting ready to happen to me is actually going to play out on the stage of all of humanity because i want you to get the point that i am the resurrection and the life so much so that when paul wrote about it later on in romans 6 he said we identify with him in his death burial and resurrection through baptism and then in colossians 2 he said and and and, and through the cross and the death of christ and the resurrection of Christ in him, we also are resurrected beings. And through what that cross enables, we can experience the fullness of Christ. I mean, he just elaborates on it like a, a real theological nerd. I mean, he just goes to town. But he's saying all this stuff because what Jesus had to painfully go through was so visceral and so challenging and so difficult. But the effect was so profound because it opened up possibilities that we never saw before. It, it reversed a curse that had been going on since the garden. It opened a pathway of grace to God. It enabled us to discover the fellowship of God through the Holy Spirit because he became credibly so our intermediary. So much so that when we go through pain, I can assure you, Jesus knows what you're going through. I mean, that's really why I'm here. I wouldn't really be that interested in preaching a God to you who was 30,000 feet up there in some abstract notion. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't interest me. But it's, it's almost compelling for me to preach to you a God who is here and who gets your world and has the credibility to see through eyes that have seen the things that you see and yet remain connected to the Father the whole time and at the same time through obedience offering a way. I'm just, I'm just getting started on that chapter, but I gotta, I gotta shut it down because there's a lot of us who would say, you know, if only it had been a little bit different. You ever have that feeling? You know, if only I'd have made this choice. Or if someone has, something bad has happened to somebody and you're saying, you know, if I had only done this, that wouldn't have happened. And I remember whenever I was at the first church that I was a part of, there was a lovely couple, 85 years of age, walking down the street. They go to the crosswalk, they walk out into the street and then a car just mows them down. And a lot of us were saying, what, what could we have done to change that? Uh, we knew these people, we were in Bible study with them, and they're here, then they're gone. And there was a lot of head scratching and soul searching and saying, if only we could change things, if only we could go back in time and we could, we could, we could reshuffle the event so that we could capture them. And there were, that wasn't the first time. There was another incident at a park, another couple that we were good friends with, with their their, their junior high age daughters walking out in the grass 
and all of a sudden a guy has a heart attack and he just hits the throttle and he runs over their daughter. And we were all devastated and so many questions and so many whys. And yet, I don't have an answer for those questions. And I don't have a, a, way, a way to go back in time. I mean, think about it. Let me lighten it up a little bit. How many of you can think of a movie where a person wanted to go in the opposite direction on the timeline, change circumstances so the outcome would be different? Any takers? Nothing? I don't watch TV. No one's seen Back to the Future. No one's seen Terminator. Uh, pick your movie. We all kind of want it, don't we? Wouldn't it be great? But you know what Jesus did? He did one better. He did come from the future. But he came from the future to show us the future. Not to undo events that already happened, but he came to show us the reality of something that is yet to take place. And he embodied that in himself and he said, when I come up out of the grave and I'm the first fruits from the grave, the body that you see will be a perfected version of what is yet to come. And so when the people saw Jesus, the other side of the resurrection, at first they weren't really sure what to make of it. But in that state, he said, this is the beginning of the new creation. And so we allowed a little bit of overlap between that new creation that we're promised. You know, we talk about heaven and the new creation and a little bit of overlap between now so that they would know, so that they would believe, so that you would believe. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not just throwing some words out there and saying, just trust me on this. But he has embedded himself into the situation where he understands where you're coming from when you ask the question. Now there's a lot more in there and if you are grieving, I hope this isn't offensive to you, but rather therapeutic. Because as you read it, you find that there's so much that Jesus is saying that helps us through the grief process and I haven't even really touched much of it at all. But I honestly think John included that because we all know that story. But there's one matter that each of us has to settle. Because when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying to us, we can't go there unless we're connected to him. Let's not follow the great teachings, but rather become one with the teacher. And the body of Christ is really a physical demonstration of people who said, we want to be one with you. We want to be in you. We want to have lives that take on a whole new character because of you. We want you to be in our lives and our life to be in you. And as mysterious as that sound sounds, it is, it happens. It's a reality. And I hope that as I leave here today, two things occur. One is... If your view of God was distant and unfeeling and perhaps scary, I hope that you see the tears that, that emerged in the face of Jesus by what I've shared with you to know how close he wants to get to each of us. But I also hope 
and it is my sincere belief that unless we connect with Jesus, our greatest enemy will always be a threat. He'll always be there haunting us, tormenting us, and finally taking us. And so I wonder, baptism doesn't save us. It's Jesus who saves us, just like Jesus is the resurrection. It's all I am, whatever it is you need, he has, he is, he will help. But baptism is a way for each of us to say, I have in my own dramatic way identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and I am a new creation. It is a way of telegraphing to everyone around you, I'm in him. I'm connected to the one who is the resurrection and the life. It is a ritual, no question, but it is so profoundly much more. It is a way for us sheep to say, I want to go there, and I want to be a part of what you're a part of, and I know you're not going to force me there, but I know you're going to do everything that you can to woo me into your love. And so what I want to share with you is this is why we're here. We're here to connect you with him. Maybe you've never made a formal commitment and said, I want to be a part of your family. I want to be a part of all the things that you promised to Lazarus and Mary and Martha and everyone else. I want to have that assurance that I'm, I'm, I'm part of that experience and will be and that hope will come alive with us together and we will be reunited with the loved ones who've gone on forever and we will have your joy forever and we'll be perfected forever and so much more. But as long as we don't believe, we can't share. And some of us have said, well, I believe in God. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about behaviorally and, and mentally and emotionally and especially in your heart, connecting to God in every facet of our being. And in our culture, we just kind of do it all in our head. We cry in our head. We believe in our head. We do so many things in our head. But in Jesus' day, you needed to cry, you cried. You needed to get baptized, you baptized. I think you get the point. I'm going to close uh, with a prayer for all of us in here and where we're at with him. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you have given us uh, on this side of it a beautiful depiction of where you're at when we want something answered and we want it now and how you're in the background orchestrating things, trying to create things circumstantially so that when the time comes, it'll all be right. Lord, I don't know if you prayed for Lazarus that his body would not decay or even for yourself in that future version just a few weeks down the road that you as well wouldn't decay so the Father could be glorified through your resurrection. But I know, Lord, that you have prayed for us in that great prayer later on in John that even those who aren't present with you will also hear and believe. 
And so we thank you, Lord, that we have been able to receive the effects of that prayer for what you've orchestrated. And I just want to echo that prayer upon the lives of everyone here, that your prayer and our prayer would be that those in the room who don't, don't know you can come to know you and to love you and to trust you and to see that your way is a little bit different than our normal way of doing things. But your way with all of the divine orchestrations is so much more robust when you answer that prayer in the way that we hope that you would. So help us to trust you, Lord. Help everyone in the room to trust you as we face the mysteries of life and our own shortcomings with hearts that say, whatever we lack, the I am says, I am and I have that for you as well. May you be the salvation for those in the room who need it. May you be the nudging for those who need that as well. May you be the sanctifier for those of us who continue to crucify our wills and very gently follow you as you lead. Bless us, Father, as we allow your word to fill us in Jesus' name. Amen.